and welcome to episode 35 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And on this episode, we'll be talking about whether or not we want to meet our favourite authors. Um, and we'll also be comparing two novels, uh, The Rector's Daughter by F.M. Mayer and The Magnificent Spinster by May Sarton. Mm. Um, yeah, so Rachel's already a little sob of emotion at the thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we get onto any of that, how are you, Rachel? I'm very well, thank you. I've just had a nice weekend in the countryside. Um, so yeah, I feel very relaxed and have, have read in two days The Magnificent Spinster, reread, I should say, um, which was a lovely experience. I don't often have the luxury of time to reread books. It's quite nice. Does this mean you went to visit your family and then ignored them? <laughs> uh, pretty much, yeah. yeah. I mean, it does involve a lengthy train journey, so, you know, there is that. Uh, um, and also, you know, we get, my parents go to bed early and get up late, so I've got time to sort of sit around in bed and read things, which is nice. Lovely. Yes, yeah. I did read most of it yesterday while I was not doing very much at home. Um, so yeah, it's a nice fast book to read. We'll get on to that later. But um, what, yes. what else are you reading? Um, well, I mean, I'm I'm researching an essay on um, it's my choice of essay, and I don't know why I've done this to myself um, on Darwinian patterns in um, slum fiction. So oh. yeah, so I'm I'm having to do a lot of reading about Darwin, of which I know I know a lot about his personal biography, but the science is rather eluding me. So I'm I'm attempting to learn about science. Which slum fiction? Um, it's a book called A Child of, Child of the Jago. I've never heard of it. By Arthur Morrison. Not a lot of people have Simon. No. Um, I'm amongst that uh, number. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting actually. It's all about it's a, it's kind of a thinly veiled. Um, portrait of the slum that used to be called the Old Nickel, which is, has been replaced by people who are Londoners will know when I say uh, by the Boundary Street Estate in Shoreditch, which is there, and it's a real. It was like the first ever council housing really in London. It's beautiful. Um, shame the council housing doesn't look like that now. Um, so it's all about how you know dreadful life was in the slums, but it's quite interesting book actually because it was commissioned by sort of commissioned by the vicar of the of the parish so there's a lot of bias going on beneath the surface of the text so it's quite interesting to read um but recommended really good book and a really sad ending so um i really enjoyed it it's quite short as well and it's free on kindle so but yeah all all the best well you have me at short (laughs) (laughs) and presumably victorian well, yes, it's yes. 1890s, yeah. Oh, even better. Yeah, the, the, the least Victorian possible sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and how about you, Simon? What have you been up to? Well, today I was in the countryside myself. I went off to Great Milton to, for a friend's oh. birthday lunch. And um, on the way there, I went through lots of small villages, which were very beautiful and I want to move to. And somehow on the way back, despite following the same sat-nav, only went on like the dual carriageway. So I don't quite know what happened there. But, oh, that um, always happens to me, actually. Yeah, bizarre. And I was quite grateful for that on the way back, because on the way there, it was mostly single-track lanes, with me worrying that tractors were coming around the other way. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so I saw lots of houses that I thought, oh, I'd love to buy those, but I'm not, you know, obviously, never in a million years I'll be able to afford to live in rural Oxfordshire. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it's nice to dream. Um, and I am reading, besides the of instance, that I am reading uh, Ian and Felicity by Dennis McHale. Which, Where did you find that? Well, it says, um, it's actually my housemate's. Uh, no. so she read, she's into very similar books. So I was, um, she, um, she read Greenery Street 
And I said, oh, there are sequels, but you'll never find them. They're impossible to find. I've looked for years. And she was like, oh, I found it on eBay. I bought it. It was eight pounds. It's like, what? <laughs> it's unacceptable. <laughs> but, um, but she has lent it to me. In fact, she lent it to me about 18 months ago, I think. So I'm finally reading it. Um, and <laughs> I, I, um, I don't remember a single thing about Greenwood Street <laughs> other than that I really liked it. Um, and I'm also enjoying this one. It's very episodic. It's sort of just like, um, Various scenes in the life of Ian and Felicity, um, the couple from Greenery Street, um, but they are, um, I can't, can't remember, maybe ten years later, they've got two grown up, well, grown up, two um, children who are eight and six or something like that. Um, so yes, it's a bit later on. They've moved away from Greenery Street, but it's got the same sort of lovely feel of just happiness. You don't, not many happy novels about marriage, and this is another one. Oh. Is it, well, if one were to find it on a used book site, would it be worth paying a good amount of money for, do you think, or not? Um, I probably, I mean, I think there are probably other books that are as good. It just depends how attached you okay. are to Greenery Street. If you really love Greenery Street and want to find out more, it's probably worth, you know, getting it, getting, um, yeah, the wallet out for that. Okay. I mean, I keep, I, pe- I periodically look for it, but I've never seen a copy, not even at an insane price. Like, I've just not seen a copy for No, top. well, I never had. Yeah. Well. Well done, Kirsty. Some people. Well done, <laughs> Kirsty. Good job. This is how, this is usually me who's the one who finds the things that no one else is good. Sure, you're really good, aren't you? Mm-hmm. My best one is still Young Anne, which is Dorothy Whipple's first book for 99p. Yeah, I remember you saying. Yeah. I'm really proud of that. <laughs> and rightly so. I think mine is yeah. Susan and Joanna by Elizabeth Cambridge, which I got for 50p. Well, <laughs> not have you read it, Simon? Look, I started it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very busy right now. <laughs> oh dear. Um, are you doing anything for Lent? No, I don't do Lent because I fail every time and then it's just a cycle of guilt and shame, so I just prefer not to. You live by grace and not by law. I do indeed. Um, How about you? What are you doing? Well, so usually I, or, or quite often I give up buying books for Lent, but because I'm already doing Pro- Project 24, of only buying 24 books, I was yeah. trying to think of something else to do. And I decided to do something a bit creative. So um, I'm writing a poem every day, right? <laughs> oh, of course you are. I've yeah. been reading them and they're wonderful. Oh, well, thank you very much. It, it does feel, it's one of those things where, you know, to friends, I can say it to people who do, I don't know that well. Who are like, "What are you doing for Lent?" It just sounds like the most pretentious thing in the world. So like, oh, I'm actually <laughs> writing poetry. I'm actually a great talent. <laughs> no, I'm mostly doing it because I um, sort of yeah, it gives me that some, something in, in lieu of self discipline to actually make myself have a go. And it's quite nice to try and practice and get a bit better. Um, yeah, so far, so far, I've managed it every day. Twelve days in. That's amazing. Um, by the end, it may be just couplets based on like looking out the window <laughs> and think, oh, I don't know, the road. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, what great di- writerly discipline. And it'll be ni- I'm writing more in a nice notebook, so it'll be nice to have it in years to come and look back at it. Oh, quite. I have to say that I'm failing miserably on that whole buying 24 books thing. Oh, how's it going? Well, I seem to be everywhere I go lately. There seems to be a closing down sale in the <laughs> bookshop. Where everything's a pound, and then I just can't help myself. What? Where is this? Where have you been? <laughs> well, in Greenwich, I went last weekend. I went to visit my brother, and we he was like, "Oh, we'll go to Greenwich." So we were walking around, and I was like, "I'm just going to pop in because it's closing down." And it's very sad actually because it's my favourite bookshop, which is called Halcyon Books. Which it, actually it's kind of really stressful because there's no organisation system whatsoever. 
Um, yeah. Even down to the fact that fiction isn't separated from anything else. You just have to go in and commit to several hours. <laughs> Maybe this is why they closed. <laughs> well, I think that's probably it. So my poor brother was sort of who has no interest in books was standing around and he's like, seriously, are you ready yet? I was like, I'm just going to explore this corner. There might be something. But I was very good and I only bought two books, both of which were relevant to my course. So I don't know whether I can probably say that they don't count. Well, I mean, you can say that. <laughs> I mean, I definitely haven't bought 24 books so far, but I'm probably getting close. And I've only bought two. Two. Well, I'm very impressed. Cause I'm, you're, yeah. Normally, it's, it's you who breaks down on these sorts of things. It is. And, and this time I haven't even really been that tempted, because I've been going in bookshops and just not really seeing anything that... I mean, there's things that I buy normally, but you know, but I'm quite happy Nothing not to buy them. Nothing that you certainly had to have. Yeah, and I've only had a few dreams about buying books. <laughs> just a few. Just a few, and they were mostly in the first few weeks. Now I seem to just got used to it. But um, I, I'm confident that I'll get the 24 in the year. Someone did ask me if I was going to buy fewer than 24. If I couldn't see them, I was like, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, my, no. I'll have a wish list I can buy on December 31st if need be. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure you'll manage. Yeah. I just actually bought, I also bought two books with a gift voucher, but does that count? Well, you can make your own rules, Rachel. Right, and that means no, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> but, uh, so yes, I should have, but um, I couldn't help myself. There's a new, actually I will just say this because people might be interested. Um, there's a new autobiography of um, Arthur Conan Doyle that just came out about the... A new autobiography? Uh, no, I don't know why I said that. Sorry. <laughs> it's late and it's Sunday. <laughs> biography. Thank you. Um, a biography, um, about Sherlock, um, Conan Doyle and the kind of influences behind his writing of, um, Sherlock Holmes. So, and it's written by Michael Sims, who wrote this amazing biography of E.B. White and how he wrote Charlotte's Web a few years ago that I read when I was in New York and I, I remember, remember reading you were it. Talking about that, yeah. yeah. And it's really good. I think because he's also a novelist, um, he's got a really, um, creative way of, of telling things and he really paints a picture of a life and it becomes so much more than just about the person it's like you really get sucked into it so I couldn't resist getting that in hardback it's just literally come out this week um, nice. so I've, if anyone else is interested in Sherlock Holmes then I would recommend yeah yeah. yeah. I'm looking forward to getting started on that once I've finished you know, finding out about 19th century evolutionary theory um, which <laughs> might take me some time to get to grips with. Nice. Right, we should get into our first topic, which was suggested by my friend Paul, also mm -hmm. podcast listener, who um, normally just tells me how hilarious it is that we talk about stuff without any real knowledge of it. So, <laughs> so Paul, I can only hope that today's episode will live up to that for you. <laughs> We're particularly amused by the scary books episode we did, where we didn't mention a single horror writer. <laughs> so, you're welcome, Paul. <laughs> um, so yes, his topic was, would we like to meet our favourite authors? Or indeed, possibly just, would we like to meet authors in general? Um, let's start by talking about the authors we have met, perhaps. Oh, okay, yeah. Unless, unless you'd like to start with something else. <laughs> no, I think that, no, that's fair, I didn't think of that. But yes, no, you start, because you've probably met far more than I have. Well, I've met a, a few, well, Met's a strong word, isn't it? So I've been to hear <laughs> a few, <laughs> I've been asked to leave. No, um, I... <laughs> Um, I'm not going to count people that I just sort of sat in the audience and heard them talk, yeah. but um, the people I sort of lined up to talk to afterwards, I chatted to Sarah Waters briefly, which was lovely. Oh, how interesting. Um, in fact, we talked about Lolly Willows by Sarah Waters oh. 1, um, and I told her that I loved The Maiden Aunt. Um, so, <laughs> which, you know. um, 
I spoke to Marilyn Robinson briefly oh, as well. You which was, didn't. I know. It was well. So I queued up and she gave me a nice smile and then I said it was an honour to hear you speak and she looked horrified and that was sort of because <laughs> I think I think I went too formal on that but I was a bit sort of overwhelmed by how wonderful it was to hear her speak. <laughs> well, naturally. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably it for that sort of thing. Um, oh, I, I once took Eleanor Hollinghurst on a, on a walk across Maudlin because he was going to an event there. My friend asked me to go and pick him up. So oh. Um, then there's a couple authors I've become, uh, sort of friends with, um, after, or at least Facebook friends with after reading their books, um, Angela Young and Jen Ashworth, um, both of whom I've met, um, and Angela Young, in fact, we had a nice, uh, meet up and coffee a while ago. Um, Jen Ashworth, I can't remember if I'd actually read her book when I met her or not. It was at some author blogger event and we were the only two people who weren't from London. So we sort of bonded in a corner about not being from <laughs> London. <laughs> she was very funny and it was great. Um. And if you've not read her latest novel, Fell, it's brilliant. Um, and then recently, I'm rattling through all of mine far too fast, but recently my friend Claire um, had oh, yes, her I novel published. Me. Yeah. So, in fact, that was one of the two books I bought this year. So that was uh, uh, my first experience of it the other way around, where a good friend of mine became an author. But, um, yes, yeah, so something quite different, of course. <laughs> yeah. But in general, with... with with um, people like Sarah Waters and Marilyn Robinson, it has been very nice to go and have a quick word with them. Um, but I would also probably not say... Actually, I suppose they are amongst my favourite living authors. Um, so, yeah, I, when the opportunity's there, I do tend to go and try and, and hear them speak at least, and then it's quite nice just to nervously queue up and say a couple of words. <laughs> but if it, I think I might get more nervous if it was actually like a dinner or something. Yes. Right. How about you? <laughs> Well, I mean, I've only really spoken to one um, because I'm I'm never very good at kind of finding out about things until the last minute. Um, <laughs> and then people will say, oh, you know, so-and-so is speaking. And I'm like, oh, great. And then I go and try and get tickets and then it's, you know, sold out. So um, I went to see um, Audrey Niffenegger speak when oh, right. um, What's That book she wrote, the second one. Oh, Her Fearful Symmetry. Yes, thank you. Um, her fearful symmetry had just come out, and um, I was really excited. So I went to hear her speak, and then I queued up afterwards to get my book signed. Um, and I was perhaps a little bit excited, um, and you know I did sort of <laughs> gavel, um, as one does when one is excited. As one does. And she gave me a disdainful look and said nothing. Aww. And then handed me back my book, which I thought was very ungracious. And since then, I have not liked her. Well, in fact, I think you maybe mentioned this when we did our Audrey Niffenegger episode and mm. we roundly dismissed um, her fearful symmetry. So, yeah, and frankly, it was a crap book. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe she knew. Maybe she was embarrassed. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that really quite tarnished the experience for me because, you know, I'd really been looking forward to it. And I, you know, was really interested to hear what she had to say about the writing process and things. Um, and then I just think to be so ungracious to people who've, you know, might have come a long way and waited a long time. And um, I just thought there's there's no need for that, really. No, exactly. Um, and I think, well, if that's what you're like as a person, then perhaps I don't like your your books, actually. <laughs> Lady. Hell has um, no fury like a reader scorned. <laughs> no, exactly. And that's sort of put me off going to see other people since then, because I've been a bit scared that, I'll have the same experience. And then, 
you know, you can't see things in the same light afterwards, can you? If you think, oh, the writer's a really horrible person, then even if you've really admired their books before, it kind of would colour everything that you read. I mean, it would for me anyway. Yeah, I think it must do. Um, I've been quite fortunate in the people I've spoken to have been really lovely um, and quite witty, uh, which has... Well, there's, there's someone like P.D. James, in fact. I'm, I didn't speak to her, but I've heard her speak twice um, and loved hearing her. She's a great speaker, but I've never actually read anything by her. <laughs> but whatever <laughs> I do <laughs> in the future, I, I, it'll be quite nice to add a dimension. Um, for most times I heard her speak, we're at literary festivals. Have, have you been to um, any literary festivals? No, because they always fall uh, at times when I'm teaching. Ah, yes. Um, and so it's just to kind of like, oh, the, it's very annoying not being able to take weekends off, you know, like, you know, long weekends Yeah. to get to places. I would like to go to one. I often get um, emails about things and I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I'd love to go to that. But they're always miles away and, you know, it's just not possible. But I would, I've, I kind of really would like to go to the Charleston one. Every year, they always have interesting people. So I was wanted. I think Hilary Mantle was speaking at one last year or something, and I was desperate to go and hear her, but I didn't get the chance. Yeah, I thought about that. It's a shame. Um, Well, I've been quite bad in that I've now lived in Oxford for (laughs) twelve and a half years, and I think I've been to maybe four or five events at the Oxford Literary Festival. And for substantial amounts of that time, I was a student and um, could have gone to anything really. Well, apart from prohibitive cost but you know certainly freely available to go um but yes i i've i did go and see um was it last year or two years ago anna thomason talk about her brilliant book about edith olivier and rex whistler called a curious friendship that was quite amusing because i i I was wondering how many people would go because i didn't think either of them were that well known um but it was actually packed um and the guy presenting starts off by saying who's read the book and i raised my hand because i'd had an advanced coffee and i'd read it on holiday and then Anna said, oh, actually, it's not out yet. And then I could sense him looking at me thinking, liar, pretending he's read the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I have, I have. <laughs> uh, but, um, yes, I, I, t- I looked through the programme for this because it's starting um, the end of March, I think. And there was nothing there that I wanted to go and see, even if I wasn't at work. No, I sometimes I find that whenever I look at the programmes for things, it's all people I've not heard of or books that aren't my cup of tea and... It's just, I think, oh, it's not really worth it. Yeah, I, and it's one of the things where if I, if I was a, had a free day and it was free, it might well be interesting. But, you know, to book a day off work and pay £15 for a ticket or whatever it is, you have no. to really, really want to go and see something for that. Well, you do. I mean, I actually, I go quite a lot to uh, Foils in, um, on Charing Cross Road. They often have evening events where you can go and listen to people who've just had their first book published or are quite newly um, writing. Okay. Um, and they have like these panels and they talk about, they answer questions and they talk about the process of writing. And I haven't included that because you said it's somebody that you've actually spoken to. And I never stay behind and speak and I'm also far too um, shy to ask a question. Um, but um, they, I find those really interesting because that's less about the person sort of talking about themselves or whatever. But it's, it's about, you know, the different ways people explain about how they write and things. And something that I found really interesting, actually, when I went to go and hear Audrey Niffenegger speak is that she spent quite a lot of time talking about the fact that, you know, she doesn't plan, she doesn't need to draft, she just writes and it's all perfect the first time, which, you know, had already started <laughs> making me think that, hang on a minute, lady, you're a little bit, I'm not maybe, quite maybe sure. Maybe you should redraft. <laughs> yeah, because the book's not that great. Um, <laughs> 
But and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And then after I heard that, I thought, oh, well, maybe that's how you should write. And then having heard loads of other people over time speaking about their writing process, um, you realise how strange or kind of unusual that process is that she described. Because actually, most people do need to do quite a lot of tinkering around um, once they've started doing something. So those things I find really fascinating. And I'm not necessarily bothered about who the author is. Mm. Um, or whether I'm going to read their book or not. I'm just interested in hearing about how people approach writing in different ways. Um, so that's a kind of different facet of looking at it because I think sometimes, like for me, I kind of tend to idolise particular writers and I think they're wonderful and I love their books. And, you know, when something's really spoken to you and you have a picture in your mind of what they're like and, um, and then I, I'm a bit scared to sort of meet them and have my... my kind of impressions of them ruined yeah and I'm sure I wouldn't I'm sure they would be perfectly lovely people but I prefer them to stay imagined lovely people that's fair enough yeah um so with the ones you don't know at this falls event is there a reason that you don't stay and chat to them Do, do other people stay and chat to them other people do stay and chat to them um I think I'm just the thing is I I always worried that I'm going to sound like an idiot and I you know or say something really banal and they must think oh you know another one asking me the same boring question. Oh Rachel. Um so I just think oh no I can't. I'm sure you'd have great things to say to them. I just well I mean maybe I just have something. <laughs> just wonder if you're like I I'm a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd be like oh here's another one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> think she's got something interesting to say about books. <laughs> then they'd listen and be like, oh no, <laughs> they realise yeah. they don't. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, a lot of the time, actually, I can't ever really think of anything to say, you know, because most of the time, all the questions that I've gone there with, they've sort of answered in their speeches um, that they give or mm, like if yeah. or somebody else has asked the question uh, during the question time and they've already said it and I don't really if I haven't read their book or I don't know their work I'm like well I don't really I can't really say oh you know love love the book thanks very much um, if I haven't read it so true and actually I will say that the question time in orthodox is often the most excruciating thing I've yeah. experienced where people ask truly terrible questions yeah. um, or more often just don't ask questions just say statements yeah yeah. nothing annoys me more than people who put their hand up and just make a statement and especially the rambling statements where everyone's trying to work out what exactly the question was within those 50 sentences and then i feel really bad for the authors who are sitting there being like right okay i don't really i'm on the spot here and i don't really know what you've just asked me or if you've asked (laughs) me anything at all Um, yes um, i will say that all the authors I've heard have been very gracious in their situations and handled it very well. So that must be yeah. something you get used to over time. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? And I feel that sometimes people um, feel that they have to ask a question. Yeah, they true. just need to ask a question. When I saw Marilyn Robertson, in fact, um, I didn't ask any questions, but I was thinking, thinking in my opportunity, I really should. But, like, yeah, like I was saying, I just couldn't think of anything... That she had not already covered. And I couldn't remember the finer details of the, of, she was talking about Gilead. I couldn't remember the finer details of Gilead that well, so I didn't want to be caught out looking ignorant. So, so I just yeah. went with telling her it was an honour to hear her speak. <laughs> so obviously, you know, everyone wins. Um, let's pretend for a moment that we can, you know, meet dead people. Um, and because I think most of our famous, favourite authors are dead. Um, yes. And I don't know if it changes whether or not you'd want to meet them if they if they were still around and the option was there to meet 
well, you, you can name your own, but for me, for me, it'd be, you know, Ian Delafield, AML, Jane Austen, Virginia Woolf, these sorts of people. And it, um, yeah, how, how, would you, not, not in a sort of, they're only alive for one day, go and get the opportunity, but just imagine you're alive at the same time they were writing. Would you want to go and see them, just meet them? Yes, I would. Uh, but I think I would like to, I would like to observe them rather than talk to them. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see them, how they interacted with people, um, and, you know, whether all the things that people have written about them in biographies or that people say about them uh, or kind of read about them through the lens of their novels is actually true from my observations. So I'd, I'd love to see Jane Austen. I'd love to see Virginia Woolf. I'd love to see the Bronte sisters. I'd love to hear their voices to know what they actually sounded like. Mm-hmm. Um you know, what in, what presence they had in a room, whether they were... Because people often say about Jane Austen, for example, that, you know, she was always the life and soul of the party and, you know, she was the centre of the family. And I'd like to know whether that was real or whether that's just a colour that people have put on things after the event. So I would just... I would, I would be terrified to actually have to speak to them because I would be terrified of them thinking that I was terribly boring and, and un, uninformed and it would just be too painful. So I would just <laughs> like to be able to just watch them. Yeah, I think, um, for me it depends a bit, yeah, like Virginia Woolf, I would be too, far too terrified to speak to her. Um, and Jane Austen, I just don't think I'd be able to, um, in that society, it would just be, it'd be weird for, for me to yes. go and talk to her. Um, there's people like E.M. Delafield who, who books I love so much and, and, and you're specifically writing something so seemingly autobiographical as the Dark Venture Lady. I've come to love her as a person that yeah. I would just want to be her friend and the idea of talking to her just for a couple of minutes somewhere and not establishing that friendship with her would be really sad, I think. Um, yeah, I feel like, with dead authors, it is easier to sort of assume that you would be friends, whereas with living authors, you know, you know, you're not friends with them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you know, in some cases you are. <laughs> but um, but certainly the idea of going to hear them speak um, at, at a proper at an event, or just to like know them casually or something, would be great. Yeah. Um, yeah, which I think is probably my conclusion that in general, I. I, f- I often get nervous talking to authors at events if I'm going to do it. Um, and in some ways it'd be nice to bypass the whole sort of reader author distance and just become friends. <laughs> but I certainly don't, don't avoid them. And I would, I always think it's nicer to have the opportunity than not to have it. Yes. So I'm a yes. <laughs> I'm a kind of half and a half because I really like the opportunity to hear them speak. But then I think I've been a bit burned by my experience with Audrey Niffenegger and then I, I'd rather not actually go up to them in person in case I've, you know, I get that look of disdain again for being excited. Audrey, you've got a lot to answer for. I know, I mean, it's really a scarring experience. She has become the punching bag of the podcast over the last 35 <laughs> episodes. Sorry, Audrey, I'm sure you're just having a bad day. <laughs> I don't think maybe she was, I'm sure she probably was just having a bad day and didn't mean anything by it. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's just the impression that it's left me with. It's very sad. You've ruined a young life. <laughs> anyway. Well, there you go. <laughs> Thanks, Paul, for suggesting a topic. Never did I think I'd see the day where you did. So, thank you. <laughs> um, it's a reminder that we are always very pleased for suggestions of topics. Do send them in. Yeah. Um, right. Second half. 
The Magnificent Spinster May Sarton versus The Rector's Daughter by F.M. Mayer. Um, which one would you like to introduce, or perhaps both of them, maybe? Um, should I do The Rector's Daughter thing as you're more confident with Magnificent Spinster? It's very sweetly put, yes. <laughs> but Simon doesn't remember much at all about the rector's daughter. <laughs> but I have read my review and your review, so I'm up to speed. Yes, we're all right. Um, neither of us have reread the rector's daughter, I will say. So that one is going to be um, shakier than yeah. Magnificent Spencer. But you know, we're never one to let lack of knowledge to prevent to uh, prevent us from um, having an opinion. So, Absolutely okay. not. And in some ways, that's brave. <laughs> in some ways, that's admirable. <laughs> In other ways, obviously, it's not. <laughs> All right, go for uh, it. Do you want me to start? Yeah, okay, sure. so The Rector's Daughter is um, a novel by F.M. Mayer. He was writing in the 19, Edwardian period, 1920s, and it's about um, a woman who is um, the daughter of a rector, obviously. Um, she is, however, the title makes it seem like she's young. She's actually not. She's in her 30s and she's single and she's stuck at the rectory looking after her father who is, um, you know, become quite elderly and needs a lot of help. And um, she also has a sister who is mentally disabled. So she has to look after her as well. So she's kind of this typical spinster figure who's been sort of forced into this position of, of being the support for the family. Um, and she's kind of happy in that situation. She lives in a small village in the countryside. She has her friends, you know, she has a life. Um, and everyone really likes her. She's a really lovely person. Um, and, you know, that's everything seems fine. And then her father gets a new um, curate who comes along. And then for the first time in her life, Mary falls in love. And um, I won't say what happens afterwards, but that's a kind of huge change in her life. And it's, Oh, it's just heartbreaking. I can't say anything more about it. But it's, you know, it's what happens in the aftermath of that and what it means to have to to live without love, I suppose. Yes, and we may have to go into spoilers later, but yes. let's leave it there for now. Yeah. Um, the Minister Spinster, um, I was quite surprised when I started reading it, discover it was written in 1985, um, mm. because I thought it was much earlier than that. Um, but it does cover a period much earlier than that. It's it's, um, it's about the life of Jane Reed um, from birth to death. Um, and it's quite innovatively told. It's from the perspective um, of a friend of hers called Cam, originally a pupil of hers. Um, uh, Rachel might be able to tell us more about the background to the novel later and how, how, how it's based on fact. But um, yes, it tells... Um, uh, it's not a post biography, it's post a novel, but someone who's writing about her friend, um, sort of imagining or her childhood from what she um, has heard about her, and then talking about the time she knew her when she when Jane was her teacher, um, and then their friendship just came after that. And it's essentially the quite simple tale um, of a woman who had the option to marry but decided not to several times, I believe, um, and how being a sort of surrogate mother and surrogate grandmother to many people can be fulfilling rewarding. Again, she's very she's very loved um by many people, very popular, and it's a much happier novel about um mm. not having romantic love and how that doesn't mean that your life is an, an empty husk. It's <laughs> <laughs> um and yeah, it's um a rather lovely novel. Oh and set in America rather than Yes. Um, yes. Then it wrote his daughter in the UK. Yes. Um, so my copy, I've written the front, 
the 1st of July, 2011, from Rachel Fenn, Brackets Booksnob. <laughs> so, there you go. Yeah, That's where I got it. Simon. I've been <laughs> a while on that shelf. It has been, oh, well, ironically. But um, <laughs> it, it has finally come off the shelf. Um, and, yeah, I I really enjoyed it. It's the second Mace Arthur novel I've read, um, because Thomas, who, from Hogglestock, is a big fan of hers, and I believe gave it, yeah, he gave the and I will be eternally grateful for him to him for giving it to me because I mean it was wonderful and I never heard of Mace Sarton before. And I read as I think it's called As We Were, uh, which is set in a retirement home, um, and I remember nothing at all about it other than that <laughs> I quite liked it, but not as much as I thought I might. So I definitely I... prefer this one. Um, uh, it's yeah, it was just a really lovely experience reading it. In some ways, it was almost too readable. I'd found that I was reading too fast <laughs> because it's yeah. it's um, I think it's that sort of really good writing that it is it's not it's not trashy or you know light fiction, but it it's so well written that you sort of fly through it. And, and I wish I'd paused more to read some of the beautiful descriptions and things. Um, and beautiful depictions of character, but um, yeah, I just sort of flew through it in a in more or less a day. Um, how did you find um, it compared on the second time to the first time? I think the first time I read it, I had a very kind of euphoric response to it because it was the first time I had read a book that doesn't paint singleness as being like the worst thing that can possibly happen to a person, <laughs> um, and I found it really life-affirming in many ways and a really interesting portrayal of of what it's like to like a really positive view of of how being without a family or a romantic partner means that you have so much more time to give to other people um and how a life of giving is something that's actually immensely fulfilling and wonderful in many ways um, and I also loved, I mean, I have a real love for New England, so I loved, and Boston in particular, so I really loved the setting, um, and the, also the description of it, because when I read it the first time, I was very much thinking about becoming a teacher. Mm. So I found it really interesting reading about the influence, possible influence that um, a teacher can have. I mean, it is a bit of a dead poet society book in that it paints <laughs> um, teachers as being these, you know, marvelous individuals. Um, you know, and but there is also the realism of it because um, Jane does kind of towards the end of her career start to flounder a bit and to struggle to interact with the children. She doesn't move with the times, and I think so. There is a realism yeah. to it, and it I thought it was quite moving that bit. Well, sorry, sorry to direct you, but um, yeah, yeah, it was one of her former pupils' child goes to the school, doesn't? Yeah, and yeah, how they're like, oh, she's just not what she used to be, and she's not, she's not inspiring them. And so, and I thought that was one of many touches in the novel actually that made it not too much sort of Pollyanna-esque if it's no. still whilst it was still it was whilst it was really affirming and really positive and lovely it also felt realistic and it didn't feel just like sort of un, yeah unrealistically beatific character no because I did read some reviews online that some people said oh you know she's a bit ridiculous like she's so perfect but actually she's not perfect there are lots of things that she does wrong and you know cam as much as he's the narrator as much as she you can tell she adores and admires her she's not averse to saying you know sometimes she can be a bit too much like this or sometimes she's like that um but i think the second reading it the second time i had just the same kind of emotional response to it i found it a really emotional book for me anyway um, I think perhaps because I identify with a lot of it. 
Mm. Um, and it feels like it's, you know, sometimes you read a book and it, you really feel like it speaks to you um, on many mm. levels and speaks into your life in a way. Um, and, you know, now I am a teacher that I find, I found the teaching bits really fascinating um, and I kind of inspiring as well. Um, and I just think it's just such a wonderful book about, you know, that it's the only book I've come across that, that actually writes about singleness as being a blessing. And I really don't think, I can't think of any examples of books that do talk about the benefits of having a life that you can freely give to others without any ties on your time or your choices, if you see what I mean. Yeah, so I think the only... So I read a lot of spinster novels for uh, my thesis. So a couple of my chapters of my thesis were about spinster fiction, um, as we visited when we talked about The Love Child um, yes. and Lolly Willows. And I, as we talked about just before we started recording, it's nice that there's a reference to um, Jane reading a novel by Sylvia Townsend Warner. It doesn't say which novel, but I'd like to think it was Lolly Willows, mm. um, which is a very... Um, sorry, it's not a particularly negative depiction of... Spinsterhood, in some ways, there's the whole issue of her selling herself to the devil, which you know. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but in in that case, it's much more a singleness can be positive because you get to be very selfish. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, you know, not necessarily selfish in a terrible way, but you get to you know, you you don't have the demands in, on your life that other people might do. Um, but yes, that's not the same as you say as singleness can make you a blessing to others, which. Um, I also can't think of any um, novels that do it certainly that do it this well or or this um, consistently. Um, and certainly, the rector's daughter, which was written in 1924, um, does not do that. No, um, she is one of that generation of daughters who, if they didn't marry, were expected just to sort of serve their fathers. I guess. Yeah. Um, I always think of the story by Catherine Mansfield, um, Daughters of the Late Colonel. Oh, yes. Which, which um, I mean, it's Catherine Mansfield, it's a brilliant story, because all of it is brilliant, <laughs> um, about how these daughters, re- sort of released by their father's death, walk into his study and just don't quite know how to be there. Um, and she doesn't get that sort of escape, I guess. Um, it is a, a, a fairly unhappy book in many ways. Well, it's incredibly bleak. I mean, I've closed the book feeling so depressed. Um, it's beautifully written, and it's one of those books that's kind of painful to read, but because it's so good, you and you care so much about the characters, you don't want to stop. But it's very bleak, and it's very kind of, I suppose, hopeless in a mm-hmm. way, because you know quite from the midpoint of the novel that Mary has no chance with this curate. Um, even though that the, the sad, I mean, I'm, we're just going to have to spoil the plot, aren't we? I think uh, so. Yeah, it's, it's going to happen. So I'm sorry in advance, people. Um, but you know, she falls in love with him, and for a while it seems like he loves her too. And you're hoping for her sake because you know she has had such a miserable time of it, and she's been stuck with her father, and actually, you know, all she wants is a home of her own. She very much wants to be a mother, and and it's not because she's single that you want that for her, but it's it's because she wants that so much. And you want her to have what, what she desires after having been, you know, completely having to subjugate everything that she is to everyone else the whole time. And I was just so excited. I thought, oh, like, her time has finally come. And then, you know, he goes off with someone else. And it's just heartbreaking. 
because the what the sad thing is is that she was fine before he came along and she would have been fine but her glimpse of seeing a different life now makes the life that she does have and the life that you know she's going to be stuck with for the rest of her life unbearable mm. and that's the pain of it is that she it, it's i kind of wish he'd never come he gave her the chance to see what her life could be and then cruelly snatched it from her. So and I can't not better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, necessarily. No, I don't think so in her case, because the thing is, it doesn't enrich her life at all. It just takes from it, takes everything from it. Mm. Have you read um, The Life and Death of Harriet Freen by Mason Clare? I have, Blair? I have. Yes, which is it. Um, I think a brilliant, very short novel about a similar sort of topic, a woman who gives up um, a love to sort of, I think, to care for her mother in that case. Yes, isn't it? it is. Yeah. And there's a heartbreaking bit towards the end where she realizes how pointless it's all been. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's certainly a lot around in the 1920s of um, spinster heartache. But um, I don't know if you recall from a review many years ago. There's no reason why you would. But um, I, I didn't love the rector's daughter, um, and it was one of those very frustrating times where I. It felt so much like a book I should love, and I thought the writing was great, and I just couldn't quite connect with it, and it didn't quite work for me. And I was, I was rereading my review today, and I was looking at the quotes that I'd quoted in it, um, thinking, "These are really, this is great, the writing's brilliant, <laughs> this looks like a book I'd love. So I, I've got a feeling it might be one of those cases where I need to reread it, and probably should have done before we did this episode. But, um, but at the time, I, when I wrote in my review was that I just found it too earnest. And I don't mind a book... I love it when books are serious, and if they mm. sort of examine a character's feelings, I I love that. But but it's, and it's sort of a fine line to decide between serious and earnest. But if I find a book's being too earnest, then that's a real that's really off-putting for me. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Mm. And I agree. I mean, earnestness is something I cannot abide. Um, but I think... For me, what I really loved about this book was how truthful it was and the fact that it didn't shy away from the fact that for lots of people, happy endings don't occur and you do just have to put up with a life that is less than what you wanted it to be and that it should be. And I think also, you know, being written in the 20s is very much representative of that very Victorian attitude of people who were born in the late 19th century and who were brought up and expected to give their lives in, certainly women, give their lives in service to their families if they didn't marry. And that idea of, certainly in the 20s, that was obviously changing. And so you get this sense of this whole generation of women who did waste their lives, essentially, based around um what was considered to be socially acceptable that was then no longer mattered to anyone anymore yeah um and i think is it a last poor lady by rachel ferguson of mm. um looks at the same issue really well and a really really good book by well i really liked it it's not generally thought of as being one of her best but father by elizabeth von arnim um is about a woman who sort of rejects this and she um eventually escapes from her domineering father um and tangles herself up rather with a with a with a clergyman as well. In fact, so beware of clergyman. But um, it's yeah, it's I think it's a obviously a great sadness for many people at the time, but a really rich scene for literature. <laughs> Just yeah, a lot of um, a lot of really interesting novels of the time, and it's interesting to see it with the Maysart and carry on into the eighties, where 
obviously, as I said, she's talking about the past. It's Jane, the character of Jane was born around the turn of the century, was she? Yes. Um, so she witnessed the First World War and all, and all of that. But um, I imagine by the 80s it was much less, well, it was much less of a consideration. But it's, it's interesting for people who were turning, you know, who were in their 80s, in the 80s, um, who were still sort of living with the effects of that uh, yes. interwar attitude. Because that's sort of a, maybe something that's written about much less. We get, we've got all those novels about people at the age where people might marry who aren't marrying in, in the 20s and 30s, but much less about what these people were, were up to in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that this in that novel, uh, The Magnificent Spencer, she very, Jane very much makes a choice to remain single. Mm, mm. Um, because And it, there's kind of a sense in there as well that she's never really felt particularly sexually attracted to anybody. Um, and her life has always been focused on... You know, she's in love with life. That's what Cam says about her. She doesn't. She's so in love with life and so in love with everybody that she can't possibly choose one person to spend her life with. That's not how she is as a person. Um, and the, and that's why there's such a sense of joy in the book, is that because she has made choices and she is happy with those choices. And her, for her, being choosing to be alone is is a valid um, choice. And I think it's that lack of validity of being single that affects the rector's daughter mary in this because in her society being single isn't is not a valid choice Mm -hmm. it's it's not something you're allowed to be if you're alone then you should be unhappy and that pervading social attitude is therefore what makes her so miserable when her one option to be in love is gone because she can't see a way to be happy outside of that and i think with Jane, she's got so much that she's interested in. She's te- she does her teaching. She's on all of her committees. She was also obviously financially independent, which makes a difference. Of course, yeah. Um, and whereas Mary has nothing else to occupy herself with. Um, and that's the sadness, really, because she's given no other choice. And you do feel with, with Jane um, that for her to get married would have been... Um, letting stuff go, and that would have been yes. the, like the option that would have made her life much less rich, which is mm. brilliantly conveyed. But it's, it's, it was weird with with Mary and the rector's daughter that she can't see another option because Dora's there, who is showing her this other other option mm. for how to be a And I guess it just goes to show like the sort of personality the character has is what decides whether or not she's happy with that situation because she can look at Dora and say Dora's also a spinster. Mm. Um, we're just gonna for now. Sorry for keep using the word. It's got you know connotations, obviously, but we'll just use the word that they use. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, yeah, so she's got this example of someone who's quite contentedly um, unmarried, but because she set her her heart both on Mister Herbert as a person and on marriage as an institution, mm. um, she can't sort of connect with that. And that, I guess that's her tragedy as well that she can't change her wishes in her life to match her situation no and also i think she's not ever been educated or allowed to see a a different way of life really um she hasn't got the in the kind of outside influences that jane has had to give her a way of seeing the world as as seeing you know jane sees the world as, as a place of infinite opportunity and infinite possibility whereas mary doesn't because she's lived her life in this tiny village in the middle of nowhere and what's really depressing about the book as well is like the village is like really 
ugly place as well. It's not a pretty mm. part of the country. Um, and there's nothing, there's nobody um, young who lives there. There's nothing of interest going on. It's not as if it's some bustling community where she could be, you know, take an interest in, you know, social visiting or being on the Women's Institute or something like that. There's literally nothing for her to do. Mm. It's in a... It's, the worst patch of, I think it's in Lincolnshire or somewhere, which is like the... <laughs> Apologies dark, to our listeners yeah, in Lincolnshire. <laughs> but, you know, it is very much painted as a really dull, um, grey, miserable place. Um, so it's like even going for a walk in the countryside isn't a relief. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's, it's just like she's she's not ever been able to see a different life, I think. And so she doesn't have that, what Jane has, she doesn't have, but she also is a bit of a um i suppose i don't know how i wouldn't describe her as a, a kind of a wet rag but she's she doesn't really have any get up and go does she no she's um yeah she's got all these sort of passions for various sort of activities i guess but no, well i don't know we're told that she's into literature and whatnot but you mm. know she doesn't seem to get excited by life maybe. no she's like she's given up um, and I, I was rereading my review, and I don't remember Miss Davy in any context other than the one I quoted her. But um, can you can you remember who Miss Davy is or what or her role is? Absolutely no idea. Well, she 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 was very funny. I remember. So basically, I have a quote from this. So there are funny bits in it. She was one of these. She was, well, certainly the paragraph I read reminds me a lot of uh, Miss Bates from Emma, where she just sort of chatters away, distracted by a dozen things at once, and is very witty about it. So there were certainly sections of wit in there. Mm. Um, and I, I, I wrote in the review that I'd much rather have read a novel from her perspective or from Dora's perspective than, than <laughs> I would um, from Mary's perspective. Oh, and Mary's in fiction don't tend to do very well, do they? <laughs> no, they don't. And it's, I don't know why. Mary's also seems, seems to always be the kind of dumpy one. Yeah. But I think, you know, it's it, they're very different books in the sense that they are very different personalities, the main characters, and they're coming from very different perspectives. And I think the key thing that I love the most about The Magnificent Spinster is that Jane never regrets and never um, is shown to long for something different. Yes. Um, and in, in some ways, perhaps that, it may partly be because of it's coming from the perspective of this friend, mm. who, which I think is such a brilliantly innovative way to write the novel. Um, yeah, I love that it's because it was it interlaces these chapters, just talking about Jane in third person with a um, coming from the the modern day first person of Cam writing it, saying, "Oh, that's not exactly how I wanted it to go," or "I'm worried about how to frame the next section," or etc. etc. I love books that put in sort of meta descriptions of how they're being constructed, particularly if it's done in not too postmodern a way, if it's not too yes. like deliberately jagged or something. If it, and this just felt very natural. And it was really interesting that you then go and see her go and visit one of Jane's friends to chat to her about Jane's life before she then wrote the next section about Jane's life. It was yeah. Yeah, sort of interestingly experimental was at the same time not at all bit jarring. No, it just kind of flows very beautifully and you don't really think about it when you're reading it because you just you're inside Cam's head. But I think that's something that's really interesting that you say that because we don't ever get a first-person perspective of things from Jane. We don't... And Cam constantly says she's not the sort of... She was never the sort of person to talk about herself. She wasn't the sort of person to open up. So we only kind of get the impression that she didn't mind from Cam and also Mm -hmm. the fact that she obviously did have the choice to marry but never chose to. And 
I think maybe that's also a difference because Jane had a choice but chose not to, whereas Mary never actually had the choice to say no. Hmm. And so I was rereading your review today and seeing that it was based on a real person. Um, can you mm. tell us more? <laughs> I can. Um, so it's based on um, Anne Longfellow Thorpe, who was the granddaughter of Henry Wordsworth Longfellow, who is now a very unfashionable an unread mm-hmm. um, Victorian American poet, but um, he was massively famous um, and you know. It also provided the title for Barbara Cummins, "Who Was Changed and Who Was Dead." Oh, was. really? There you yeah. go. <laughs> the only way I found out about him was trying to work out where that title came from. <laughs> <laughs> is, um, is he Hiawatha? Is that him? Hiawatha, and also uh, probably most famous to Americans for doing the um, Midnight Ride of Paul Revere poem. Never heard of it, but cool. <laughs> yeah. So that kind of created that whole, um, you know, real sense of legend around the revolution because it was during the time when it was the centenary or twice, you know, 200 years or whatever you call that. I don't know. Um, sure. So it was, yeah, so he was very famous and um, the family all lived in the Cambridge area of Massachusetts, so where Harvard is, and had those huge, amazing. If you've ever been there, um, have you been to Cambridge? I haven't. No. no. no there's the, the streets around Harvard are just filled with ridiculously enormous Victorian mansions. Those lovely clapboard ones with all the turrets and the gingerbread lace around the doors and things. Um, so they had a big house there, um, and so it's based upon. Uh, on, you know her and so presumably she had I mean I don't I've failed to find much information about her or in fact any information about her online but presumably she was her teacher um she was my teacher um and never married um and had a huge fortune um so it would so I don't mean I don't know how much of the novel itself is fact and which is fiction because Mm. it does read a lot of the stuff that she a lot of the details she gives about her family and things it feels very real but I don't know how I mean she makes him he's a he's a novelist her grandfather rather than a poet in the book of course Um, yes and um but her mother's name was the girl um Anne's mother's name was Allegra just like um she is in the book so yeah so it's interesting I mean I would love to find out more about this woman but I think what's really interesting as well is that it does say in the novel like so many people like Jane you know go unnoticed go forgotten and it's very much the same like there's no information about this and Longfellow online either you know these people are remembered through the people that they affected um yeah someone says that yeah the history is full of great yeah. people who are forgotten yeah. yeah and that's just how it is and I think that's what's so lovely about the book is that it does just read like somebody uh, who loved somebody wanting to memorialize them um and i did feel i think i felt like she was real by the end like and i wanted her to have been real just exactly as she was Mm. and i I felt a bit tearful when i finished it today i was like oh um, well, I have it on good authority from your previous view that you wept on a train last time you read it. <laughs> I keep crying on trains. It keeps happening to me. I need to stop <laughs> reading books on trains. Um, but yeah, no, it's just it, I just find it wonderful, and I feel find it really life affirming. Yeah. Um, well, I think we've been wrapping up long enough that we should probably nail our colours to the mast <laughs> and make a choice. It, well, I mean, it's quite obvious which one I'm going to choose um, <laughs> <laughs> because I really liked the Magnificent Spencer, um, and 
possibly on a reread would really like Rector's Daughter, but as it uh, so far, in fact, I didn't have much luck with the other book I read by her either, the third Miss Simmons. But um, yes. oh, see, I liked that. I think I'm just a really big FM Mayer fan. Yeah, clearly. Um, which I, I am intrigued to know which one you will choose between the two of them. Well, you know, it's a bit of a tricky one in the sense that I think The Rector's Daughter is a very beautiful book as well, and it's a very honest and true book, and I think it's very brave for F.M. Mayer to have written it um, because there is no happy ending. And I think often that really does is a death knell for a book and its popularity. Um, Mm -hmm. But in terms of, you know, how a book makes me feel, I'd have to go for The Magnificent Spinster because it's one of the most inspiring books I've ever read and also brave in its own way. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, great. great. Well, thank you for um, finally persuading me to get it off my shelf and read it. You're welcome. <laughs> um, next time, are we doing The Handmaid's Tale in 1984 next time? Did we decide that a while ago? Um, or are we going to postpone on that one? We might have to. Okay, um, we'll see. we're not sure what we're doing next time, guys. But it'll be something great. <laughs> yeah, it's something great. Don't worry. <laughs> um, and at some point in the future, we'll be doing those two works. Hopefully, at some point before they become fact rather than fiction. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> on that happy note, um, <laughs> we'll talk to you next time. And thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you, bye.